welcome everybody to our latest privacy web webinar. I'm Jessica Rich of Kelly Dry and Warren. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about uh, teen privacy, our updates on teen privacy and teen privacy law with a fantastic group of experts, including Donna Frazier, uh, Senior Vice President of Privacy Initiatives at BBB's National Programs, Claire Quinn, Chief Privacy Officer of Prevo. Is it Prevo? It's that's how I vote, it. but you can say anything you like, Jessica. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and my colleague, Laura Vandroff, who just gave me the prompt to, to start the, uh, the, the webinar, uh, who's also a, a, re a recognized expert on privacy. And I'll let each of them introduce themselves quickly, and then we'll get started. Why don't we start with you, Donna? Sure. So thank you so much for, for having me. Um, in my role at BBB National Programs, I oversee all of our U.S. and ex-U.S. privacy programs and initiatives, um, which include our Copper Safe Harbor program, which is part of KRU, the Children's Advertisement Review Unit. Um, and that was the first FTC-approved Copper Safe Harbor 20 plus years ago. Um, previous to joining BBB National Programs for 10 years, I managed the Copper Safe Harbor program um, for ESRB, the Entertainment Software Rating Board. So I, I, I've been living in this space for a little over 15 years, I think. Claire? Yes, so I am Chief Privacy Officer at Privo and also look after our Kids Privacy Assured programs, which includes the COPPA FTC approved safe harbour, also been around for around 20 years, uh, GDPR Kids programs, Student Digital Privacy Assured program, and our Privo ID, which is our identity and consent management tools for parents and identity verification. Um, we work with hundreds of brands, small startups, bigger brands to help them align the regulations and to comply with COPPA. Um, I also previously worked with um, as Chief of Safety at an MMO, Virtual World, um, where we were dealing with teens and tweens in chat rooms and community, millions of them at one time, um, and I implemented Copper Safe Harbor to that MMO and built in a lot of teen protections and tween protections for users. Um, before that, I was head of Lycos Interactive UK, uh, where we built the biggest chat room online in Europe, um, working very closely with law enforcement, building in moderation tools, etc. So I've been in the space around 20 years the kids space around 20 years now which makes me very old <laughs> uh and laura well, good afternoon i'm laura vandroff i'm a partner at kelly dry and i'm um, so pleased to be here i um have been practicing in this space um, for about 13 years before that um, uh, was a litigator. And um, what brought me here today is that I've worked on both sides of the table. I was at the Federal Trade Commission for um, about a decade and then worked at AT&T in consumer protection, including touching on COPPA. Um, I have managed and contributed to FTC investigations in COPPA. Um, and since I've left, have represented companies in this space. Um, of course, they don't necessarily fit a single mold, publishers, um, ed tech, and we're seeing um, increased focus on ed tech uh, most recently, gosh, 20 minutes ago from the commission in its uh, policy statement on COPPA. And I'm looking forward to today's conversation. And I am the moderator, but I can't help mentioning that um, I was at the FTC for, I'm um, Jessica Rich, for 26 years and most of my career there, I was the bureau director at the end of it, but most of my career I worked on privacy and I did the first COPPA rule. I was the um, uh, uh, manager on that project. So boy, I also have been working in this space a long time as have all of our uh, colleagues. So a little housekeep before we get fully into it. Um, some of you are on because you're, you're, this is a CLE program, and please note there'll be a code read later on in the program. Uh, and in, in order for you to receive CLE credit, you're going to have to note the code and submit uh, the affirmation form that you receive in the calendar invite for the program to get that credit. Okay, so now let me quickly set the stage. And um, let's see, can you go to the next slide? Here's our introduction. Okay, pretty slide. Um, uh, uh, and, and then I'll get our experts uh, talking. So for the past 25 years or almost 25 years, the focus in 
uh, kids' privacy and, and minors' privacy has mostly been on young children under 13. And the main law in the U.S. has been COPPA, and that's the law that's, that's uh, still, uh, still a pretty dominant influence. Um, and the regulatory line between young children and teens for all of that time was pretty darn solid, with teens basically lumped into the adult bucket for purposes of privacy protection. But recently, however, um, all of that is changing as regulators, policymakers, and others have increased their focus on privacy and safety issues affecting teens. Um, the UK issued its age-appropriate code for online content, which has really had an influence across the world. Uh, and that's designed to protect kids and teens by uh, directing um, uh, websites and, and, and online services to design their content in an age-appropriate way. California is considering a bill that's uh, similar, and a variety of U.S. Uh, federal bills have been proposed along the same lines. Frances Hogan um, testified about social media fueling kids' uh, addictive and self-destructive behaviors. Studies have also been done on, on that issue. Uh, and some of the recently passed U.S. privacy, state privacy laws have at least some kid provisions in them, and those are existing laws. Uh, and, and I would add that with a full complement of commissioners at the FTC, there could be some actions on teens as well. Can't be under COPPA. COPPA is statutorily under 13, but the commission still has some authority to address this just using its section, you know, its FTC Act authority. So with this backdrop, um, let's uh, drill down um, with our excellent panelists and um, starting with Donna and Claire. So, you know, what's the issue here? What concerns around teen privacy and safety are driving all of the recent activity? How are these concerns the same or different than concerns about younger children? Either one of you can start, but I'm interested in both. I'll, I'll jump in and then hand over to you, Shaladonna. Um, I would just say that, you know, obviously teens have not been afforded the same protections. And as a result of that, we have seen, you know, what we've all suspected for a long time and probably know anecdotally that there are a number of harms to their well-being, physical and mental well-being, um, because they're on social platforms that are exploiting them for vast amounts of revenue. Um, because if you look at the way that the social platforms have been built and, you know, 13 to 17 year olds are still children, they're vulnerable, they're developing, they're experimenting, and yet they have a, social, a profile built of them that is way beyond anything that they're even aware of, that knows how they think and feel, um, and then uses that, and, and their algorithms are compulsive and addictive, and they use those algorithms to target them with beauty ads and diet pills, etc. when they're talking about issues around body image. And we've seen um, a lot of this laid bare by new research by the whistleblower, Frances Hogan, with the, with the um, information that she shared and, and we all heard at the Senate hearings. Um, we've seen how Meta and Instagram really know already what what they're doing. They know what's happening with these teens and they and they knew. Um, but they have there's been no protections for them and, and they're making vast revenue out of them. So so they've been allowed to just continue doing that. Um, I think laying that there has brought it into sharp focus. Um, and that's why we're seeing a whole raft of proposed legislation coming out. Um, you know, when you think about some of the harms that have been taking place. I know in, in the UK a year ago, there was um, a whole survey into plastic surgeons that were looking at how many young women were teens were going out and getting lip fillers so that they could all have the terrible Insta pout that we know about. So I think not having any protections for teens, turning a blind eye really for so long to their vulnerabilities online um, has re resulted in real harm and and hopefully now we're seeing a sea change in that with the legislation coming. But I'll, I'll let um, Zona add to that, obviously. And by the way, can we go to our beautiful next next slide uh, while we're while Donna is warming up? <laughs> sure. sure. So I mean, I think we need to think about you know how we got here, right? So 
um, when COPPA was legislated, we were dealing with a very, um, in many ways, um, immature um, digital and tech, tech um, environment. So now we have a very, very different environment that we're dealing with. Um, and the data flows that power today's digital environment are moving across different generations and devices. Um, many of the currents that feed in, into today's environment are generated by this mobile app ecosystem and other portable devices where you know, users of all backgrounds, of all ages can engage with their favorite games, social media, as Claire mentioned, tools, and entertainment sources. Teens are a major participant of this ecosystem. It, it happened so fast, I think, before we could even turn around and see what was happening, right? That all of a sudden, all of these risks, some of which do apply to the under 13, but because of the level of engagement, because of the level of um, screen time, access that teens have, it does heighten some of those same risks that we've seen with the under 13 set to the teen set. And teens are faced with questions and trade-offs when it comes to the use of their tech and their privacy. Um, and that reality is leading to all of these questions. And I think all of the proposed legislation that we're seeing, right, everything from screen time to mental health, to online safety, to cyberbullying. Um, th that's, I think that's, that's why we're, we're where we're at today. Okay, great. That's, that's, that's a great setup. Now, next slide. Um, so, um, you know, we're in a very dynamic time where people are starting to realize um, all these issues. Some laws have been passed and others have been proposed. So let's start with what laws are on the books right now, um, even though they're very new, even in and of themselves, but what, what laws are already on the books? And I'm going to ask um, uh, Laura and um, Claire to address this with Laura focusing on the United States and Claire obviously focusing on um, the rest of the world. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so happy to address um, the, the U.S., Jessica, um, and, and in the United States, of course, we have a, a really um, decentralized, for the most part, um, set of laws with, with some federal law exceptions, and I mentioned at the top, and so did you, uh, COPPA. Um, in addition to that, and in addition to comprehensive privacy, we have sectoral uh, privacy laws, most notably student privacy. Um, and it, with respect to student privacy, there's, there's really two flavors. Um, the, the first and most comprehensive are these state student privacy laws. Um, a number of states have student privacy laws modeled on California's 2014 law that took effect in 2016. Um, now, some states only regulate a narrow, narrowly defined set of student personally identifiable information. Others regulate both student PI and other uh, student data that maybe a service provider gathers through um, its service. Other states um, regulate both, but impose strict requirements for student personal identif uh, personally identifiable information. These laws have a number of things in common in that they regulate operators, um, such as uh, organizations that operate websites, cloud computing um, services, mobile apps that are um, knowingly designed to be used for school purposes. They protect um, that information that's gathered, and um, they impose affirmative duties on operators. Um, the laws that are based on that California law, so PIPA, um, they generally require operators to only use student data for school purposes um, and to meet specific standards and obligations, including data security and deletion requirements, um, and of course, to follow data breach notification procedures. Um, there, there's prohibitions, of course, on operators using covered information for specific purposes. Many laws prohibit operators from using or collecting information for targeted advertising, um, developing a profile for non-school purposes, or retaining information for longer than contractually permitted. However, some permit operators to engage in these activities with the consent of an older student or of a parent. So there's more to these state laws, certainly, including on um, transfers, permitted uses, and exceptions, but I'm going to leave it at that because this is very much an overview. Now, the federal, um, I'm sorry, the federal law, the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, FERPA, prohibits disclosure of personally identifying information from a student's educational records to third parties 
without prior written parental consent or the consent of the student if she's at least uh, 18 uh, or attends post-secondary school, um, unless certain exceptions apply. That's the federal overlay on student privacy. Um, Jessica, you mentioned also the state privacy, the comprehensive privacy law overlay. There's now, we've got five comprehensive state privacy laws in our, fracture, in our fractured privacy law regime in the United States. Each treats children's information somewhat differently. In California, we've got an opt-in consent that's required to sell or share personal, uh, personal information of minors under 16. In Colorado, uh, parental consent to process personal information uh, concerning a known child is required. Virginia and Utah, they, they apply COPPA standards. And in Connecticut, it's interesting, the brand new law there, the requirement is to process, um, uh, we, we've got um, an interesting requirement with respect to Connecticut that, um, forgive me here, I'm looking at uh, notes that the consent is required to, to sell personal data of minors uh, 13 to 16 or process their personal data for targeted advertising. So again, you know, for companies that are looking um, at a compliance regime requires really careful study to line up all of these. Now, um, then the, the federal overlay um, outside of, um, we talked about student privacy, the federal overlay, and then for general privacy, we've got the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, which applies to operators of commercial websites that are directed to children under 13, um, or that have actual knowledge that they're collecting, using, disclosing PI from children under 13. Um, that uh, statute, that rule, um, there, there are few people who know it as well as um, Jessica, <laughs> Claire, and Donna, um, but it is a, a rule and a statute that's under review by the FTC now. Now that that rule review has been ongoing since the summer of 2019 and as well there is the overlay of um, section 5 uh, from the FTC and UDAP from the state uh, attorneys general so there is a lot going on with children's privacy both in terms of uh, prescriptive regimes as well as um, the more um, uh, subjective regimes. Claire how about in Europe? So in Europe, I mean, obviously we have the GDPR, which is comprehensive, and you know that that encompasses GDPR applies to children completely applies to children, but there are special protections for children. Um, you know, and they merit special protections under Recital Thirty Eight. So um, the GDPR obviously applies um, in its entirety, and. Um, What's interesting about the GDPR compared to COPPER is that it affords protections for children under the age of 18. Um, so the, the ages of consent are very different across each EU member state, which is not exactly helpful um, to companies trying to align, to align their privacy work and in a practical way. But there are different ages of consent under the GDPR across each EU member state. Um, and parental consent from the holder of parental responsibility is required when, when consents that lawful basis for processing children's data. Um, it also has some fundamental differences in that um, children have a lot more rights and they can action their rights. Best interest of the child is at the heart of the GDPR. Um, and I think some very fundamental differences in that age-appropriate um, privacy policies and privacy notices are very important under GDPR um, and we saw a fine for TikTok in the Netherlands last year because it wasn't a clear and accessible privacy notice for children. So GDPR is probably the overarching comprehensive one and even though the UK is no longer a member of the EU, the GDPR is enshrined in our, our national data protection law but obviously that whole regime is, is under scrutiny and discussion right now and that we're going to see some changes in that area. Um, the UK Children's Code has a statutory footing, so it means that if you don't comply with the code, then obviously that's taken into account in any enforcement action. It's made up of 15 standards, and I think really at the heart of the code is privacy by design. Um, challenging, and, and you know, I'm sure we'll talk about some of these challenges later, but challenging in that if you've already built your service and site, you know, bringing some of those standards into play, it, it can be difficult 
difficult um, when you have a system that's already up and running. Um, but the code really looks at ensuring not just privacy for children, but default settings that are the highest standard, but nudge techniques, things that push children into certain behaviours, um, they come under scrutiny as well in the code. Um, when, when we look across the rest of, of the EU, you know, think laws, Netherlands Children's Code is not law. Um, the Irish Data Protection Commission's fundamentals are not law. Um, however, those guidance, that, that's guidance from those those data protection authorities really will inform any enforcement actions that take place under those data protection authorities um, when they are the lead supervisors. So it's very worth being aware of, of those codes, uh, the Netherlands Code and the Irish DPC fundamentals. Um, we can touch on EU Digital Services Act and Online Safety Act, and I think they both have an important role to play in relation to harms in teens. They aren't actually on the books yet, but they're going through process. Um, EU policy making is very complex and takes a long time. And the DSA, the EU Digital Services Act, is not actually um, enforceable yet. Hopefully around 2024, we might see that. And the Online Safety Act is still in um, is still in committee stage, but I think we can touch on that when we, we come to talk about the new laws. But I think that, you know, the fundamental differences between COPPER and, and uh, GDPR, which are probably the two most comprehensive in, in this space right now, and the, and the code um, really is around the age and the children's rights, parent, proper puts parents in control, and the, the code and the GDPR really um, focus on the best interests of the child and the child has rights as well. So I think they're the key, and we'll touch on the DSA and the Online Safety Act as they're still passing through in some more detail, unless you want me to dive into that now, but I don't want to take all the time up. Well, um, that, that, that's great. And I was going to stop here and talk about all the challenges this creates for people, but I think maybe the, um, it would be useful now since part of the solution is what BBB has just done, which is to develop um, some guidelines. Maybe, maybe it's best to let Donna talk about what BBB is trying to do and why before we have a qualitative discussion of all the challenges this creates for companies and how they're dealing with it. So um, uh, with the next slide, maybe Donna can jump in um, and talk about the comprehensive guidance on team privacy that she, uh, working with her organization, the, the Better Business Bureau, um, just put out. Um, Donna, first, what prompted you to do this now, as if it isn't obvious from the discussion we just had about um, showing the need for um, incredible guidance uh, on the part of companies. But anyway, take it away. And Donna, I think you're, you're muted. Yeah, I'm so. sorry, sorry. It's a 2022 issue for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Um, so really what prompted this conversation started two years ago, over two years ago in our organization, because as, as conversations about broadening the scope of COPPA started to ramp up, um, we were talking to more and more companies about some of the challenges, especially those companies who to date were not targeting or directing their products to children um, who are actually, you know, making every best effort um, to be deemed a general audience product or website. Um, I began to really think about these companies have no idea what it's going to be like if they indeed have to start verifying age, implementing age gates, um, and really doing a more robust monitoring of their products and services and where their data is going. Um, and we also listen to companies when they say to us, we don't even know how to have these conversations with our teams internally, right? Um, oftentimes legal, in-house legal becomes the no police um, marketing wants all the data, legal wants none of the data. Um, how do we help companies start to have these conversations internally? So um, we turned to many of our national partners, BBB national programs, um, a, a really diverse group of multinational U.S. businesses um, to create this operational framework that's really meant to help teams build digital products and services that consider and respond to the heightened potential risks and harms to teenage consumers. Um, we took a look at um, all of the harms and risks that have been identified in proposed legislation um, and um, elsewhere, both here and abroad, and said, okay, you know what, let's identify the harm and let's map it to certain behaviors and, and how do you build a product that can avoid 
those risks and harms. Um, so that was really kind of the impetus for it. Um, you know, we took a really, really close look um, at, again, all the legislative um, proposals out there. And really what this roadmap is intended to do is really encourage responsible processing of teen data, um, help companies build guardrails for teen interactions with others through their digital systems, um, you know, reflect on that appropriate content for teens, understand that, um, you know, if, if to date you've been general audience and you haven't really thought about this teen subset, you really need to think about is this content appropriate and, and what does it mean um, for, for teens and how do you appropriately message it? Um, and what are those signposts um, for, for privacy? And we also think that there's an educational component here as well that companies need to really take upon themselves as well as, you know, I think everyone in the ecosystem. What is, what is education um, for the user, um, for companies, for platforms, um, for educators, all of it? Um, we talk about, you know, creating good digital citizens um, with children, you know, probably from the time they're five start having these conversations. Um, but I think for teens, we really need to start having these conversations in greater detail because the trade-offs for them, is, as I mentioned earlier, um, and the risks are, are quite high and significant. So, you know, um, this roadmap, again, is intended to really help privacy by design um, at its core, but it's also about data ethics and really taking a look at the data that you're collecting and why you're collecting it, why you need it, how it's being used. Um, and I think for a lot of companies who are really conscious about their brands, um, data ethics, trust, transparency is key, and especially for these advertisers uh, who, again, have so much money and time invested in their brands. We're, we see more and more, and I'm not saying anything that they don't already know, which is that you know brand loyalty is beginning to start at a younger and younger age, in part because of this mobile ecosystem where advertising is in kids and teens' faces more so than it ever was. So brand loyalty is starting much earlier. Um, and brand loyalty has to do with also nowadays um, how you're collecting the data, how it's being used, and can I trust you with my data? Um, what environment are you are you giving me, and how are you taking me into consideration? So um, you know this is a living, breathing document. Um, we're still receiving feedback from companies. We're asking companies to still engage with us. Um, we've been getting great feedback. We've been talking to folks on Capitol Hill about it. Um, I'll be presenting this to um, EU DPAs next month. Um, so we're getting. Um, really a lot of good feedback. We've had some academics take a look at it as well and give us feedback on it. So it is intended to be a living, breathing document that um, this is just the tip of the iceberg. We know that there's more to do, um, but we really feel like um, this is an opportunity for self-regulation to step in while all these proposals are happening. Um, and, and we'll talk about self-regulation a little bit later, but this is an opportunity for self-regulation for industry to come together to say, um, we, we recognize that there's an issue and we need to get ahead of it. And this can help us do that. So Donna, is the um, is the roadmap meant to map uh, fairly well to the basic requirements and all these diverse laws that we're seeing that are specific about teens? And can you um, just take through at a very high level the some of the the key principles because they do reflect some of these other laws that are both being passed and on their way to being passed. Right, so, you know, we're taking a look at, um, you know, if you're designing a product that's collecting personal information, um, some of those risks and harms that we're telling companies to be aware of are, you know, unexpected uses of data, normalization of data collection, um, the increased risk of data breach, creation of a larger digital footprint, um, you know, unnecessary collection, unauthorized collection, um, you know, so um, I think if you go into taking a look at, um, you know, the use of algorithms or even like I, we have a whole big section on, on user generated content. So um, there are a lot of harms that map to user generated content, cyberbullying, image abuse, unsafe, unwanted contact, um, you know, self-harm, digital reputation. So all of these things seem to be what the legislators are trying to address and really what we talked about was, okay, if you're designing that product, here are some considerations that you should be taking into, um, you know, the thought process when you're building out this product um, and developing these practices to avoid these specific harms. So um, it's really, it's a really robust document. We get into a lot of detail. We have, um, you know, a couple of pages of additional resources that we use in helping us develop this. Um, but again, as I said, this is um, something that 
is um, a living, breathing document, and, and we welcome feedback and engagement. We're looking for companies to continue to engage with us on this. So that's great. So, so I guess this would be, before we go on and we talk about these additional layers of laws that are now being considered, I think it's a good time to sort of um, pause and um, have everyone provide a little input about what, um, what the challenges are, even from the laws that exist already, and, or, or even just, not just the laws, but, but companies' desire to, to get ahead and address teen privacy. What, what, are the, what are the challenges you're seeing from companies? And, um, um, you, know, uh, you know, what steps are companies taking to overcome them? What, what is your experience, anyone? I mean, I, I think what we're seeing, what we saw for some time was what happened, I think, probably in the early 2000s with COPPA, which is companies said, you know what, I'm just going to wash my hands. I'm not even going to engage. I'm just going to not collect. I'm going to create an environment and wall off everyone who's under 13. Now companies may say, now I'm going to wall off everybody who's under 18. But a lot of companies also recognize that 13 to 17, there's buying power um, there. And they don't want to disengage that audience. That's an important audience for them. Um, but how do they engage with them in a safe way? How do they do it in a way that, that's trustworthy and transparent? Um, so I think companies are trying to figure out how they do that, right? So back to my earlier point about how, if you've never done age gates, if you've never done notice and consent, how do you do it in a way that um, is engaging the user and doesn't burden down the user experience? Everyone gets what they want, um, including the user, which is you know, a very safe environment. Um, I think companies are being extremely thoughtful about how to do this, um, but also recognizing that, especially for the multinational companies, trying to figure out how do I map this if I have users in different countries, right? Instead of asking age, are you asking country first? I mean, I think that there are significant challenges for companies to try to figure out how to do this. Um, but I think that there's a level of thoughtfulness that I don't think we saw um, probably back in the early 2000s. It was just much easier to just close off that under 13, but we don't want to do that. There's also um, you know, a need to give teens a certain level of autonomy. And there's also information that we do want them to have. Companies want them to have access and information. Um, it's not all harmful information. Some of us, they really need to get. So how do we provide it to them in a way that, um, again, offers transparency and trust? As, as Claire and, and Laura, as you're working with, with companies and, and consumer, you know, advocates, et cetera, like what challenges are you seeing around addressing teen privacy yeah. and safety issues? I think, I mean, obviously there are a lot of issues for companies to address and try and align. We have more and more companies coming to us looking for help with team verification. You know, how do you verify that you're actually dealing with a team? Um, trying to retrofit. So looking, you know, I call it retrofitting, but you're looking at a service that's already been built. How do you apply these new standards? How do you apply these new requirements? Aligning the regulations, um, knowing your audience, how to verify age without collecting more data. Um, so there are a number of different challenges Challenges. I think particularly aligning so many different requirements um, can be a challenge and, and some companies will bury their heads and just try and carry on and some companies are facing it head on and want to engage with that, that age group and we see more and more coming to us for things like team verification and support with team privacy and safety. Um, one of the things I think we have seen, and, and it's another side to this, is some companies making an effort to comply. Um, and I think we have to welcome that and look at what they're doing, but also look at it very carefully. So, for example, when the Children's Code first came into force um, last September, I think, um, the the certain social platforms all started making changes immediately, you know, setting um, accounts to for you 16s to private by default, not allowing content sharing um, or letting, you know, putting that by default, privacy controls for parents, etc. So we did see a raft. And um, when I say we have to look carefully at this, but the, these new codes and laws do make a difference. At the same time, Five Rights Foundation here in the UK, a non-profit that campaigns for children's rights, 
um, led by Baroness Kidron, who's been behind the Online Safety Act and um, and the Children's Code. Um, they did they did an investigation into all of those changes that were made by the social platforms at the time. Um, there was around eighty, and on the surface they looked great. And I think you know, for example, Facebook um, Meta announced that there would be no more targeting, ad targeting for teens, which some may welcome, some may not. Um, but actually, when, when they investigated, what they really found was there was no more ad targeting for teens by third parties, but that Meta was using its own in-house AI to carry out the targeting. So I think, you know, some of these changes We'll see companies making an effort and they need support and help to do that. They need self-regulatory frameworks. They need the work that, that Donna and the BBB are doing. They need the support of companies like ours. But but others that, that will put out a big PR headline and great, maybe they're doing some things, but we do need to look carefully at what they're doing and make sure that they really are adhering to, to it and it's not just headline news. Yeah, I think so. Donna and Claire have raised some really interesting points. Um, in, in the United States, of course, um, you know, we, we don't have a, a design code, although, you know, we'll see what happens in California, a, a point we'll get to in a minute. Um, but but what we what we have seen is increased fracturing of, you know, exactly what laws companies are subject to state by state. And as companies work to align, they need to look at trend lines. And certainly in the United States, trend lines are headed more toward this uh, prescriptive regime regime that does provide for more rights for teen data. And so the efforts of the BBB to provide that guidance about where things are headed and how companies can think about building products in a way that, that that provides um, really structure around future proofing um, is so helpful, so that um, it's it's not it's not just council um, you know really thinking about these efforts, but that companies can can small and large companies can do it in a way um, that allows their business model to not just exist in the you know immediate term, but to do that on a going forward basis um, really does help. I mean, well, I and the um, Sorry, Jessica, one last point, though. I think one of the biggest challenges that we're seeing is actually the platforms, right? So a lot of companies are housing their products on these platforms. The companies want to do everything in their power, right? But the platforms, in some ways, may be tying their hands or restricting them from doing certain things or how they want to actually, you know, be more thoughtful in what they're doing. Um, the platform's guidelines clearly don't always align um, with what the company may want to do, but they need the access, um, they need the platform. So I think that there needs to be more conversations um, with the platforms, getting them to, I think, um, step up and um, work more closely with developers on, on um, the product side to really figure out what this can and, sh and should look like. And I mean, our roadmap was designed, um, you know, with the platforms in mind as well. We had a platform at the table. Um, so um, we do think that this is kind of agnostic to whatever it is that you're doing. Um, but I do think the platforms um, create a significant challenge for companies. Yeah, that's a really good point, which is one of the reasons why people want to propose laws, because right. they want everyone to be subject to the same rules. Um, so it's, you know, even the, a lot of what we've been talking about is going back to some fundamental principles as opposed to worrying about all these different sectoral laws. But if each, if companies can't do that because other the structures of the way we operate business now prevent them, that that isn't even good enough. Um, so um, let's add to the complication of what we've already talked about and um, and 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 tell our audience. Um, can we go to the next slide about? In addition to the, all the the laws we've already discussed, what additional laws may come to pass? up here and abroad. Um, why don't we start with Laura for the US? You know, what new teen privacy laws have been proposed at the federal and state level and maybe coming, coming online as it were? Yeah, so let me, um, I'm gonna take this a little bit of a, out of order from the slide and, and because I mentioned it, the, the, and, and Claire also talked about the design code, um, mentioned that California age appropriate design code, um, which um, is a bipartisan bill 
in in California, um, and it, it's modeled on on the UK um, design code and and would establish similar standards. It is you know it's not a one for one, um, but for for goods and services uh, product features that are likely to be accessed by children. And here, child is is defined as a consumer under the age of eighteen. So this is not a COPPA standard. It, it's not um, under the state law. It's not like California sixteen. I mean, this is California, but not like CCPA defined at sixteen. Um, and uh, the the um, the, the likely to be accessed is based on known audience, content, marketing, um, or online context of goods or services. It's, it's really built on COPPA principles. But when you extend that out to 18, it really, um, for, for those of us who've practiced in the COPPA space for a long time, I at least have trouble wrapping my head around how you do that. I am the parent of a 13-year-old, and I can tell you that he's a very different person than he was when he was eight or nine. I mean, the the, um, the kinds of content that he's consuming at 13 is just, just qualitatively different. Um, the, the bill directs the CPPA, which is, as those of us who are practicing in the privacy space know, knows having some trouble getting the regulations out, um, to create a, a data protection, uh, I'm sorry, a children's data protection task force that would promulgate implementing regulations um, by 2024, April of 2024. And um, interestingly, doesn't include an enforcement mechanism, but instead states the intent of the legislature to create a subsequent um, uh, to create subsequent legislation to enforce it, um, which again, as a former enforcer, um, is interesting. So, uh, so that that I think is a really important place for us to start in terms of you know what's coming down the pike. Um, some other things. Can I just interject because? Yeah, please. Um, I you know I realize I'm moderating, but I I had, I have some opinions, so I'm just going to interject a few. So um, I just want to underscore that you know all of these standards, there are things that are going to be vi- extremely difficult for companies to apply and for enforcers to enforce. And Laura just called out some of them. And these are common. They likely to be accessed by minors. Like a company figuring out what's likely to be accessed by minors, it's not based on their content. It's based on some supposition about minors behavior is a very difficult standard. It's gonna be difficult standard for for companies and for, for enforcers. Similarly, there's a lot of stuff about duty of care to avoid harms to minors, which is it's very hard to figure out what what it, what it, what does the duty of care require and and how and what are the mechanisms for avoiding harm. So um, so so I think as laws, as opposed to self-regulatory standards that have more flexibility, these are these are very difficult. These are going to be very difficult laws to apply, and we only hope that there's guidance and, um, and uh, maybe rulemaking around them so that there's more, more, more detail helping companies figure out how to comply. Okay, back to No, you. absolutely, but uh, without an enforcement mechanism, I, I don't even know how that works. Right. <laughs> so um, yeah, to be clear, um, that was a very high level um, explanation yeah. of, of the bill um, just because of, of time, but, but, but yes, the real concerns yeah. here. Um, let me and also dark just, patterns are also a piece absolutely of yeah very yeah, hard. Bill talks to, about prohibition yeah. and use of dark patterns, yeah. prohibition for 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 a great many things that that yeah um, right. So so um, we also have a couple other bills that are up on the slide. Um, the 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 Kids Online Safety Act, another bipartisan. Um, bill sponsored by Senators Blumenthal and Blackburn. Um, this got a lot of media attention. It would, um, it is it purported to aim at addressing the effects of social media use on children and teens. And um, the 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 summary talks about teenage mental health crisis, which I mean, this this is real, right? We've seen a, a additional um, media reports that have really um, documented what are what is happening to our our children, particularly in the wake of the pandemic. Um, but it would require covered platforms, which are defined very broadly, to implement tools and options for children and their parents 
um, to protect their information online and control the content that they see on the platforms imposes new obligations on a broad array of companies um, without explaining exactly what those duties would require. Um, it attempts to provide both parents and children under 16 with control of platform data uh, practices, including algorithmic recommendations, but doesn't specify whose preference would control if there um, would be a conflict. And um, it doesn't also really consider uh, how it interrelates with COPPA obligations for children under 13. So um, we have some concerns here too. Um, and then uh, the, the, the Kids Privacy Act, a bill um, uh, pushed by Representative um, Castor in Florida is another um, uh, design bill. I don't know, Donna, if you wanted to uh, address that, um, but you know, we're seeing a lot of uh, attention in, in Congress and in state legislatures on this issue. Um, certainly has broad implications um, for business and for the free internet, if that's where we're headed, um, but, but unclear if there's gonna be any momentum at the, at the federal level for that. Um, I think it, it's more clear that the California legislature is headed that way. Yeah, I think just to touch on a couple of things with um, Castor's um, bill, and you just pinged one of them, which is, you know, free internet. Um, she's essentially saying that this free business model can no longer exist. Um, but then what is it supposed to look like? What does it look like? I think we know a subscription service um, would completely cut out um, a large sector of society who needs access, who can't afford a subscription. Um, you know, and even those who can, are they going to want to pay for it? Um, so, you know, there's that. And then, of course, her bill also calls for, you know, um, the removal of self-regulation self in, in the kids space, which, you know, for Claire and I, that's that's significant. Um, that that means something, you know, and it doesn't just mean something for our businesses. It means something for um, the businesses we work with and ultimately the consumers. Um, so, you know, that yeah, the hope is that we, we move away from that. Um, Claire, do you want to talk about the... Um, it, the new things that may be coming online internationally. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, GDPR, as we know, has been enforced for a while now. Um, but what I think will be interesting and new is that the European Data Protection Board um, is due to announce at some point, we're in the second year of their two-year work plan, their guidance for children, and children meaning U18. Um, so we're going to see that coming out um, hopefully in the next year. Um, We've got several pieces. They're not specific to teens and children, but they encompass teens and children. Um, so in the UK, we have the Online Safety Act. Um, again, that's same sort of issues and challenges that you've discussed around some of the US legislation. Um, it's taken a long time to get through its passage in Parliament. It's back there now at committee stage. It's 300 pages long. There are lots of concerns about some of, of the requirements of it, but essentially it imposes a duty of care um, on the any any platforms that and and it's aimed at the big platforms um, that publish content, um, bringing in protections for children um, and and really trying to mitigate the harms. But again, there are some real controversies about elements of it, um, and I think one of those being encryption and encrypting messages is is an issue. Um, so I think. That's, that's an important piece. Another, the, the EU's Digital Services Act, I mean, that's that covers the whole of the EU. It's a little bit similar in that it sets standards for accountability around harms um, and imposes those standards on a very broad definition again here. So, you know, any online service that provides goods, allows for content, um, provides services online. So again, a broad definition and, and how to apply that is going to be interesting. Um, as I said previously, EU um, policymaking is very complex and, and, and this is still being revised. So I don't expect we'll see it till 2024 coming into force. Um, again, it's, it's got some challenges. So um, it's looking at, you know, age verification, 
You've got to have age verification in place, but don't collect data for age verification. So quite contradictory in parts. And how is that going to be managed by industry? Um, and that really leads into the EU Commission strategy for a safer internet for kids. Um, the EU is also looking at its own age-appropriate design code. How is that going to align, you know, and how are we going to harmonise and how are companies going to be able to, to bring all of these different standards in? Um, so that's going to be an interesting one. And they're also so the EU Commission is also looking at a European-wide age verification standard and bringing electronic ID in for teenagers, for children, essentially, but mainly for teenagers. So I think that's, you know, we're going to see some, some changes around that. Um, and then I guess, you know, the, the, the Commission is also looking at neuromarketing, which is very interesting. You know, we see a lot happening in the metaverse where you can track eye movement, biometric data. You can, you know, you can build these profiles of the users of all ages. And, and how does that feed into the marketing side? And there's, you know, there's prohibitions on advertising in the DSA. I mean, we know that... Um, under GDPR, the best interest of the child is not automated decision making and profiling, which impacts advertising for all users, you know, below 16 and, and, and has implications for 16 and 17 year olds as children. Um, and, and the DSA prohibits the collection of data to advertise to kids. Um, and I think that's another challenge that, you know, Donna and I are very aware of in industry is, you know, advertising isn't all evil and we don't want to see, um, services disappear completely for children or then block children because they can't generate any revenue to provide their online experience, which may be incredibly valuable to children. So, you know, the whole process of ad tech needs to be looked at. And I think we will see the ICO looking harder at children's services and at ad tech and, and paving the way there with some changes and some enforcement actions potentially around the code. Very helpful. So, um, so I wanted to move to a topic that um, Donna touched on because, uh, which is. Um, it looks like maybe Jessica's uh, frozen. Why don't we advance the slide? Oh, Jessica, uh, you're back. Okay. I'm back. Okay. I wanted okay. to, yeah, I was, yeah. Um, so I wanted to, to move on to the topic that Donna and, and Clara both touched on, um, both in, uh, explicitly and implicitly, which is the role of self-regulation because, um, Obviously, when you have so many laws, um, which overlap but are a little different, um, self-regulation can be very, very helpful. And maybe the word self-regulation is, is no longer in style and it's more um, industry, you know, um, programs to help with compliance with the law, you know. But um, the irony is that right now, self-regulation that word has, does, has got a bit of a, a bad connotation, at least in the United States, because there's a sense that some self-regulation hasn't been strong enough and, and we shouldn't incentivize self-regulation to the exclusion of regulation. But I'd like to hear all your thoughts, um, starting with, with, with Donna and Claire, Claire and Donna, whichever order, about how you view the role of self-regulation in, uh, in this space or whatever we want to call it, and if there is skepticism about it, what you are doing and you can be doing to address that in strengthening your programs or at least um, uh, presenting them different, differently, et cetera. I, love, I, I think, and, and Laura, weigh in here any because I know you've worked in this space as well. So why don't we start with Claire on the role of, of, of self-regulation and the challenges? Absolutely. Predictably, I'm going to say that I think self-regulation is, is very valuable. You know, establishing standards, practical ways for, for companies to um, abide and, and, and be in compliance with the regulation, um, you know, uh, trust and integrity in a service, I think are all incredibly important. And it's one tool in a toolbox. It's not regulation or self-regulation. It's a tool in a toolbox that provides an awful lot of value to many, many companies that, that decide to join or adhere to a framework. Um, and I think that's really important to remember. And, and, and it's interesting to see what's happening in the US around the copper safe harbours and the criticism of, of that that self-regulation because, you know, in other industries, in other sectors, we see self-regulation um, really growing in strength and being very important. You know, so what we know is that 
that some businesses won't do business with another company that doesn't have a SOC 2 certification for security or an ISO standard. So, you know, that they are recognized as extremely valuable. And, and what I know from, from working in ours for many years now, at, you know, at the coalface, is that you see we often see new companies coming and asking about joining Safe Harbor and our program because, and I'm sure Donna's had the same experience, but because other companies won't do business with them if they can't say that they're compliant and they want to see that trust mark, they want to see that seal and that certification in place because it gives them confidence. Um, so, you know, they're incredibly valuable. Um, what, what I think, you know, if I'm thinking about how this criticism of Safe Harbor in the US and you know, where that's coming from is it's an interesting one. When I look at our members, they absolutely see the benefit. You know, many of our members have been with us, and I'm talking big brands and small, have been with us for many, many years. These companies are investing in compliance and working out how to implement the requirements in a practical way so that they can protect kids' data and protect their brands. Um, you know, they put their heads above the parapet, they open their doors to evaluation and assessment, um, and they're prepared to remediate. So, you know, taking that away is like throwing the baby out with the bathwater and everyone I work with will laugh because that's the phrase I use every time. But why would you do that when it's such a valuable tool? Um, so, you know, I think there are so many reasons to keep it. And a safe harbour should be measured not or a regulatory programme, not by the number of, of the companies that it expels because they're not adhering. Because the whole point is we support them and remediate and help them get compliant. We don't chuck them back out into the wild west to go off and do the things that we don't want them to do. And, you know, as Donna will tell you, you know, no safe harbour and our business models, we're not making lots of money. You know, but it's a, it's a cost to those companies to invest in us. And we are seen as a cost center. I think less and less now because of brand trust and integrity that the public and everyone else in the industry wants to see. But, you know, it, it's so important to have these kind of measures in place and not throw them out into the Wild West. And I think just let, to touch on the last in. point. Let me just jump in because we're running out of time and let oh. and, and let Donna, I know she wants to discuss self-regulation. And then I want all of you to give your top two tips on to companies on addressing teen privacy and safety issues. So Donna, you take it away on self-regulation and then give us your two tips. Right. So, you know, I, I think the one thing that, that most people don't understand about running a cop of safe harbor is that it's a lot of work. It's 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 very very challenging, especially if um, you're doing it the right way, right? And I think the criticism of safe harbors, part of it, I think, is is due to the fact that there haven't been really hard questions asked of safe harbors. Um, the FTC has begun to do, you know, we do annual reports, um, and when they started doing the annual reports in 2014, the the, the form has changed, the questions they ask have changed. Um, but I've been a proponent of saying, look, come knock on our door. We're happy to have you look at what we're doing, how we're doing it, what we're doing. Um, to Claire's point, companies who decide to subscribe to Safe Harbors are the good actors. Um, so let's pay attention to the bad actors. And that's where you need self-regulation. This is, you know, we, we exist with the FTC. We are their boots on the ground. We work with them. We are their police in this space. They don't have the bandwidth to do all this work. Um, KRU specifically, you know, is both a safe harbor as well as a self-regulatory body that investigates the space. So let's take, for instance, in 2017, our case against TikTok. Um, we, we did an investigation because we believe that they were in violation of COP and they're directed to children. Um, they didn't agree with us. We have the power to um, refer that case to the FTC or a state AG. We referred to the FTC a year later. They came out with a case and fined them. Um, those things can't happen without self-regulation. It's just that simple. Um, we have to police, but it's not, you know, I would consider COPPA Safe Harbor's co-regulation as opposed to self-regulation because we are working with, you know, a federal government entity here. Um, but the challenges are, are immense. And I think to do away with Safe Harbors without fully understanding the nuances of what we do, how we do it, and the value it brings to companies. This is not even just about brand trust. This is about accountability. So if safe harbors, if the notion of safe harbors go away, companies still have to show their accountability efforts because yeah. they're going to get the knock on the door 
from a regulator saying, what have you done and how have you done it and who'd you work with? Who was your, it's not just, and it's not just self-regulation, it's independent. Independent self-regulation is really the key. I'm worried we're going to turn into pumpkins. So (laughs) uh, first of all, the the code for CLE, and now I'm going to ask you for your one tip on um, what is your top tip for people listening about how to address uh, teen privacy and safety issues. Uh, Claire, one. Um, So many. Know your audience, understand your audience, and then you can treat them appropriately. Great. Laura. Uh, so we're looking at trend lines. And while, you know, in, particularly in the United States, not everything extends to teens, we're, we're looking at that trend. And so as you know your audience, as Claire um, described, consider intentionally extending policies um, to that audience. Great. And Donna. Um, make sure the conversation you're having is not just housed in legal or marketing, the entire company is involved in the conversation and development of product and put yourself in the shoes of a team. Great. Okay, this has been a great panel and I really thank our panelists again, 3091 and in our follow-up to uh, all the attendees, we're gonna tell you about future uh, webinars that we're hosting. Thank you so much everybody for participating. Bye. Thank you, bye-bye.